We have some great fathers and grandfathers in this church. Amen. Amen. Those pictures brought such a smile to my face, and and you know I didn't know how many I would get when I put that request out on Facebook. I think I got more pictures of fathers than I did moms for Mother's Day, which really surprised me. And and that wasn't even all of them. So, uh, well done there. You can always go to my Facebook page and look at those pictures and and see some more as well. You know, not everyone is so fortunate to have great dads like these, and. And, you know, so we remember them and think about them on Father's Day. And, and maybe there are those here who feel some regret because they didn't really appreciate their dads when they were around. Or maybe this morning you aren't yet a father, but you hope that someday you will be. And, and, and so whether you're a father or not a father this morning, maybe you're wondering, well, what kind of dad am I being to my kids? What kind of father will I be to my children? So as we end this series, this InstaFam series today, I want us to look at the, a model father, the kind of dad that every child really deserves to have. Because our culture doesn't really offer a lot of good role models for dads. There's just not a lot of them out there for us to look to. But the Bible gives us, of course, the ultimate father figure, God the Father. He is a good, good father. So no matter what kind of father you have or had, God is a thousand times better than he could ever be. God is such a good, good father. And Jesus tells us a parable, which is a story with the spiritual truth about a father, a father who, like God, loves his children extravagantly, even his wayward son. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, we're going to look at that in in just a moment. It's the story uh, that, that we call the the parable of the prodigal son. And so in this story, we, we tend to focus on the two sons, particularly the one that we call the prodigal son. But the parable of the prodigal son isn't really a very good title for this story. It's not accurate. Do you even know what the word prodigal means? Now, most people, they think, well, the word prodigal must mean rebellious, wayward. That's not what prodigal means. The word prodigal means extravagant. So how does this story come to be known as the parable of the prodigal son? Well, it got that name because what does the son do? He asks for his half of the inheritance from his dad, and then he goes out and he wastes it on extravagant living. He just goes out there and he lives it up and he parties and he blows through all of dad's cash Really, really fast. And so that's why we call it the parable of the prodigal son. And, of course, we know that eventually he comes to his senses once he's hit rock bottom. And he, he, he makes a plan to come home and try to get his dad to hire him as a servant. And, and then his older brother, you know, is, is kind of, you know, uh, not really hip with his brother coming back, you know, and getting welcomed back into the family. And because he left his family, he rejected his family out of callousness and greed. But neither the rebellious son nor his more responsible but judgmental brother, neither of them were the star of the story. Now, this story is really about their dad. Jesus even begins it in verse 11 saying, There was a man who had two sons. Jesus tells us right there, this story isn't about the sons. This story is about the dad. He's telling us a story about a father whose extravagant love points us to the scandalously extravagant love that God our Father has for us. His ungrateful, selfish, rebellious, and wayward children. That's why I like to call this the parable of the prodigal father. 
Because really it's the Father's extravagance that is the key of the story. It's His love that is truly what is extravagant here. He is a model Father from whom we can all learn some important lessons this Father's Day. And the first lesson that we learn is that a Father's love is prudent. A Father's love is prudent. Look at verses 11 and 12. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, prudence... It's a form of foresight. To be prudent means that you've got some foresight, some wisdom that, that looks to the future. It means that you know what kind of behaviors lead to desired results. And what I mean is that a loving father knows that the values that he instills in his children, the time and the effort that he invests in them, the attention that he gives them now, today, will influence the kind of people they will become tomorrow. He has foresight. He's prudent. He's parenting today with an eye for tomorrow. Now, in order for a father to do this, they've got to be examples themselves of the kind of values and truths that they are instilling in their children. And, and, and fathers, you must instill and be examples for your children of absolute eternal truths and enduring values. Values such as being biblically faithful. Worshiping God authentically, depending on prayer, being missionally engaged in the world, serving others with compassion, affirming the value and importance of the family, being relationally centered and empowering others to be the people that God has created them to be. Now, these values I just mentioned are actually the eight core values that we as a church have adopted. And so beginning next Sunday, I'm going to be preaching a sermon series for the next eight weeks on these values. And I hope that you'll come and you'll think not only in terms of how our church embodies these values, but how can you and I as men and women, as young people and adults, how can we as mothers and fathers and husbands and wives, how can we live out and instill in other people these biblical values? The fruit of the Spirit are also some great values that we should be embodying and instilling in our children. In fact, uh, dads, the, the book you got today, and, and, and women, the, the book you got on Mother's Day, it's a study through the fruit of the Spirit. So those are some great values that we need to be bearing in our lives and helping our children to bear as well. God's truths and values must be modeled and taught from the time children are born. In fact, the Old Testament speaks to this essential element of good parenting several times, such as in Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. We are to be instilling into our children the values and the truths of God's Word. We're to surround them and immerse them in God's Word. That's what Deuteronomy chapter 6 is saying. And then Psalm 78 is a powerful passage as well that speaks to, to, to moms and dads. Oh, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, what we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell 
the next generation. The praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which He commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. Even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget His deeds, but would keep His commandments. They would not be like their forefathers. They wouldn't be like we might tend to be, stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to Him. So the next generation would know Him, even the children yet to be born. So maybe you don't have children yet. That doesn't mean you can't begin praying for them. That doesn't mean you can't begin preparing for how you're going to parent them and instill in them God's Word. As God said in Deuteronomy, these commandments are to be upon your heart before you can impress them on your children's hearts. You can never be an example in your speech and conduct if it's not in your heart first. So be working on your relationship with God. Bear the fruit of Christ-likeness in your own life. Live and parent now with an eye for tomorrow, for eternity. Don't just be a hearer of the Word. Be a doer of the Word. A loving Father is prudent enough to know that His actions speak louder than His words. He never has a do-as-I-say-don't-do-as-I-do mentality. Rather, He understands that His children need to see Him in God's Word every day. His children don't just need Him to send them to church. They need Him to bring them to church, to take the lead in prayer at home, in family devotions. I've seen it far too often. Children whose dads aren't faithful in worship. They're not a part of a small group. They're not actively serving in the church. And those children, nine times out of ten, end up being the the children who walk away from church after high school graduation, often never to return. And their faith becomes even more lukewarm than their father's faith. This is how we're losing entire generations to secularism and relativism and atheism, it's largely because Christian dads aren't embodying the truth of God to their children. Now, Jesus doesn't give us a lot of backstory about this dad and these sons, but we can infer a great deal from his actions, his words, his attitudes. This was a dad who invested in his children. He taught them God's eternal word. He instilled core values in them. Now, like we often do, they didn't always live by what their dad taught them. They, they, they strayed from, from what their father instilled in them. The younger son, you know, he kind of had to go learn his father's lessons in the school of hard knocks. But that doesn't diminish the father's investment. Because he's not interested in short-term gains. He's interested in long-term gains. He's got his eyes looking down the road. And, of course, we know in the story that it paid off in the end. He did more than just to provide for his sons materially. That's important. He did more than just provide for his sons mentally, educationally. That's important. He provided for his sons morally and spiritually. He instilled in them the values and the truths of God's Word. Proverbs 22.6 tells us, Start off children on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not depart from it. 
Now, this verse is not an absolute promise. Okay, We, we all know people who, who have not lived the life that they were raised to live, don't we? And, and, and maybe who strayed from the way they were raised and didn't come back. We know people like that. This verse is not an absolute promise. It's a verse of hope. It's offering us hope. In fact, the Hebrew word start, when it says start children off, it's, it's, it can also be translated as train. To train children in the way they should go. This isn't describing a parent who just sends their kids to church to learn about God. This is a parent who actively trains their children in the ways of God. It takes intentionality. It takes time. But this Hebrew word also means give a taste. To give a taste. It's the idea of giving someone a taste of something so they'll learn to love it and want it more. The point of this verse is that if we give our kids a taste of the sweetness of God's Word and His love for Him, they will develop a palate for it and they will crave to know God and His Word more and more as they move through their life. We all do this all the time, parents. We expose our kids to things we want them to love. You know, I mean, it could be sports. It could be Star Wars. It could be particular kinds of food or or fishing or camping or hiking. We're always exposing our kids to things that we want them to love and enjoy. How much more than sports or fishing or camping or you name it, how much more should we give our children a taste for God and His Word? Amen? Loving fathers are prudent. They parent now with an eye for tomorrow on that end goal on that finish line. But secondly, a father's love is patient. Let's look at verses 12 through 20. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. He divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now, for a Jewish young man, this is just the most humiliating of jobs he could ever have to be slopping pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. Now, as we know, neither son, if you know this story, neither son in this story are really living out the values that their father have instilled in them, which is why a loving father has to also be a patient father. Remember, he's not just concerned with the short term. He's got the long game in mind. That means that he's restrained in how he deals with the problems that, that, that are uh, arising with his children. He's restrained and, and, and intentional in the way he disciplines his children. He's not short-tempered. He's not flying off the handle at the slightest provocation. And so this father let his son go with half of his estate in his hands. Now, in that day, for a son to make a request from a father like this would be tantamount to saying, Dad, you're dead to me. Give me what's coming. I want my share of the estate. Can you imagine that? 
I mean, it was disgraceful. He effectively wrote off his family for money. And amazingly, this father complies. He gives his son the money and he lets him leave. You see, this father understood that sometimes you have to let your kids learn lessons in the real world. He could have said no. He could have taken his son on an epic guilt trip. How can you do this to your mother and me after all that we've done for you, son? He could have played the comparison game. Why can't you be more like your older brother? He's so hardworking and responsible. But he didn't do either of those things. He let his son go. He let his son make his own mistakes. Here's a dad that hung on to the hope that if you start your children off, if you train them up on the right path, they'll end life's race well, even if they get a little detoured along the way. He was prepared to stand by the investment that he had made in his son. Now, sometimes the hardest thing we can do for our children is to let them go and to give them the freedom to make their own mistakes. That can be one of the hardest things. And as much as we want to, we can't hold on to them forever. As much as I want to, I can't hold on to my daughter forever. I can't always go on making all the decisions for her. We have to let our children grow up. And that might mean some scrapes and bruises or sometimes even worse. And as much as it broke his heart and as much as he worried about his son and longed for his son to come home, he let him go. And he didn't follow him and he didn't send any servants out to keep an eye on him. He, he didn't have some kind of little, you know, little net there to kind of catch him or bail him out. He was old enough. He was a young man at this point. So he respected his autonomy. The father let him go. But listen, he let him go. But he never gave them up. You understand the difference? He let them go. But he never gave them up. You may have a child that you've been patient with. And your patience is wearing thin. And you're beginning to lose hope. I want to encourage you, don't give up. Be like this father. Be faithful to who you are and whose you, who's you are. Keep living out what you have instilled in your children. You be that example to them. You show them the better way. You show them what life is really like when you live in the freedom of God's Word. You see, the world says that freedom is doing what you want, when you want, how you want, with who you want. But we know that kind of life only leads to slavery. Not to freedom. It leads to pig pens. Not to blessings. That's what happened to his son. He became a slave to those things that he thought would give him independence and freedom and identity. And that's always what happens when we try to live outside the authority of God's Word in our lives and in our homes. But then we see in verse 17 that this father's patience pays off. Because in verse 17 it says that the son came to his senses. All that training was not in vain. He had been taught better than this, and he knew he had been taught better than this. And, and, and let's be honest, that's usually the case, isn't it? We know we've been taught better than the things that we do. And so having hit rock bottom, he decided to tuck his tail between his legs and to head off home with his hat in his hand, hoping his dad would at least hire him on as a servant. Now, can't you just picture... This long-suffering, patient, hopeful dad. You know, he's been out there working in the fields 
Every once in a while looking up at the horizon. He's standing on that front porch, looking down that road every day in the hope that a son will come walking up. And once again, his patience paid off. Look at verse 20 again. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. I'm sure that dad was thankful to God that he had not given up hope on his son. He was patient. But we also see in this verse, number three, a father's love is forgiving. See, his loving patience gave way to loving forgiveness as he gathered up his robes and with reckless abandon, he hightailed it down the road to his son. That boy may have been walking home with his hat in his hand, but his dad was running to him, dignity thrown to the wind, robes in his hands. He didn't care what anybody thought of him. His son was lost and is found, was dead and is alive again. And the son couldn't even get through more than the opening line of this speech that he had prepared for his father when his dad just fell on his neck and so full of forgiveness, didn't have the time for explanations or apologies. He certainly didn't have any time for I told you so's. He didn't care about any of that. He didn't need to know where his son had been, what he had done, or what happened to all that money. All that mattered was his son was home. And all that boy heard was welcome home son through his father's tears. That's compassion. That is grace and mercy. That is love. And that's the kind of love every child needs from their dad. Now, don't get me wrong. When you're training your child in the way they should go, you need to correct them. You need to discipline them. There's a time and a place for discipline. Proverbs 19:18 says, Discipline your children, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to their death. I mean, think about that. This verse is saying that, that, that your discipline of your children is a part of that hope. It's a part of training them up in the way they should go so you can have the hope that when they are old, they will not depart from it. And a parent who doesn't discipline their children is a willing party to their death. So yes, God expects us to correct and discipline our children, but then we need to forgive them. Children need to understand the power of forgiveness. That they can correct their mistakes and learn from their mistakes and move on from their mistakes without having them hanging over their head or thrown back into their faces. How can they ever believe that their heavenly Father can forgive them of their sins if they never experience their earthly Father forgiving them for their mistakes? We must forgive. And that means that true forgiveness, at least from the recipient's perspective, true forgiveness has to be forgetful. That's the third thing we see. A father's love is forgetful. Look at verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. Let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to party. See, the dad didn't hold a grudge. He forgave his son, and then he forgot about it. 
He put it in the past and moved on. Restoring that broken relationship with his son was his number one priority. He didn't say, welcome home, son, but now you're going to have to prove yourself. None of that. No earning his way back into dad's good graces. He was fully restored as is symbolized by the robe and the sandals and the ring and the fattened calf. Now again, this doesn't mean that there shouldn't be rules or expectations for when our children disobey. It doesn't mean that trust doesn't still have to be restored when it's broken. But what it does mean is that when a child is truly humbled and repentant, our first priority is to extend forgiveness and focus on restoring the relationship. See, this son's not coming home with a haughty, rebellious spirit. He's not coming home just because he's hungry and wants a decent meal, but then he's going to be back out there with his friends. He's repentant. He's changed. He's owned up to his actions. Look back at verse 18. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. He acknowledged that what he did was wrong and that his father had every right to be displeased with him. Look at verse 19. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. He was humble. And he was resolved in his heart to not repeat his past mistakes. That's repentance. And repentance always precedes forgiveness in the Bible. Repentance involves a change of attitude that leads to a change of affections and a change of actions. And we see that illustrated right here. He changed his attitude. He changed his mind. He came to his senses. He changed his affections, his will, when he said to himself, I'm going to leave this life behind. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to my father's house because it's better than the life I've chosen for myself. And he changed his actions because he actually got up and left that wreck of a life behind And he returned home. We see in this story not only a dad willing to forgive and forget, we see a son willing to change. Coming home with a humble spirit and a repentant heart. And you know, whenever we've been wronged, you know, you've really been wronged by, by a child or by anybody. You've been wronged by someone. If they are truly repentant, if they've changed their attitude and their affections and their actions, we must forgive We must forgive the same way God forgives us. Psalm 103.10 tells us how God forgives us. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Lamentations 3.22 and 23 says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Forgetting means that we no longer treat someone as their sins deserve. We don't try to make them pay for what they've done. Our mercies and our compassions are new every morning. But there's another son in this story. I don't want to leave him out. This son wasn't perfect. He had his own problems. So let's consider how this father loved his older son. His seemingly mature and responsible son. And I say seemingly because he really didn't embody the values that his father instilled in him either. He was, he was selfish and, and he was self-righteous and he was arrogant. He wasn't people empowering. He wasn't family affirming. He wasn't relationally centered. So the final thing we see is that a father's love is focused. 
Look with me at verse 28. The older brother, or let's I'm sorry, back to verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But then this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home and you killed a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. In other words, this father's priorities were in order so he could keep things in a proper perspective. That's what it means that his love is focused. Think about it. Here's the older son complaining about never having been given even a young goat to party with his friends. Now think about that for just a minute. You want to talk about somebody who didn't have a right perspective. I mean, here this older son, he's living from a place of scarcity. He's thinking, you know, well, I'm slaving for you, Dad. And, you, and, and his father has to remind him, son, everything that I have is yours. You're not slaving for me. This is yours already. So this son lost all perspective and he refuses to join the celebration because his heart is not in tune with his father's heart. So he's out sulking in the field while the party's in full swing in the barn. And people are eating and drinking and dancing and laughing. And people are starting to wonder where the father is. He's not here. Where is he? He's outside. He's left the party. He's left the son that he found to go out and to seek out his other son. Helping him get things into focus. Training that son in the way he should go. Reminding him his identity as his son. That, that this is already his inheritance. He can't see that because he's so consumed with jealousy. Because he's comparing himself to his brother. Because he's unwilling to extend forgiveness and grace. So his dad is redirecting his focus and helping him gain proper perspective of the truth. He's affirming in him the values that he's already instilled. Values such as you need to celebrate when lost things are found. It's a great value. Now, Jesus was crafty in telling the story because you know what? He doesn't tell us how it ends. He leaves it open-ended. We don't know how this story ends. Does the older son go into the party? Does he forgive and embrace his, father, his brother as his father did? We don't know. Perhaps Jesus doesn't tell us because he wants you and me to finish the story. It's like those old choose-your-own-adventure books. Remember those when you were in school? I love those things. It's a choose-your-own-adventure parable. Will we forgive and forget as the Father does? Will we celebrate when those who are lost are found? Will we choose to join the party or stand out in the field and feel sorry for ourselves? This story is such a beautiful model of what a father's love should be. The dad in this story spared no expense to show his love and his forgiveness to his son. He didn't begrudgingly welcome him back as a hired servant. He welcomed him back with a party. 
He killed the fatted calf. He put the best robe and the signet ring on his son, affirming that he had been welcomed home fully and given back all of his rights and privileges as his father's son. But the real message of this Father's Day is that this dad is a picture of our Father in heaven and the love that he has for each of us. Haddon Robinson, in a sermon on this parable, said, With God, the calf is always the fatted calf. The robe is always the best robe. The joy is always unspeakable. And the peace passes understanding. There's no grudging in God's goodness. He does not measure His goodness by drops, like a druggist filling a prescription. It comes upon us in floods. That's the real point of Jesus' story. That God the Father deals with us in the same way this Father dealt with His sons. With reckless extravagance. Having spent everything He had to restore His relationship with us. God is prudent in His love. He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. He has showed us the right way to live. God's love is patient. Yes, He has given us the freedom to choose. And He's warned us what happens if we don't choose to love Him. But it's our choice to make. Our free love to Him is so indescribably valuable to Him. He didn't create puppets. He created people. But God is patient also in that He never gives up on us. No matter how many times we choose the wrong way. He is forgiving and forgetful because His mercies are new every morning. He promises to forgive us, to cleanse us, and to make us new. And He remembers our sins no more. And our Father's love is focused. It's focused on our good and on His glory. The invitation this Father's Day is very simple. It's an invitation for you to finish Jesus' story. And how can you do that? Well, one of two ways. The first is, will you come in from the fields and the pigs, pigs, pig pens? Will you come in and join the party that is the kingdom of God? The Father waits with His arms open to receive you. He wants to bring you home to Him. He wants to restore that relationship with you. He wants to forgive all of your sins. And put the robe of sonship or daughtership on your shoulders. Will you come this morning? Give your life to Jesus Christ. Experience his new mercies today. But a second way we can finish this story is by answering the question, will we be the kind of father that this father was? Will we be the kind of father that God the Father is? Will we be prudent in raising our children in the fear and instruction of the Lord? Will we be patient with our kids? Will we forgive and forget when they make mistakes? And will we keep them focused on the things that eternally matter? First Baptist Church Thompson is a church that wants to help you, encourage you, and equip you to be that kind of parent. Maybe God is leading you to unite with this church family. Maybe He's he's calling you to come and to bow at this altar today and renew yourself, your commitment to be the kind of father that God the Father is to you. Whatever God has laid on your heart, would you stand and sing and respond? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your great love for us as is demonstrated on the cross of Christ, as is illustrated in this parable that we've read and looked at this morning. God, we know that we're not perfect. We know that we've made mistakes. And I pray this morning that there would be somebody here who would come to their senses and realize that they need Jesus. They would come to you in faith and trust for forgiveness this morning. And Father, you've caught all of us as moms and dads, as men and women, 
to have this same kind of prudent and patient, forgiving and forgetful and focused love for our children, for the children you've entrusted to this church, and for one another. May we be that kind of people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.